seat this morning. Um, as we are continuing to plot along, you can turn to Acts chapter, uh, actually 21, the very end of 21. That's where we're going to begin this morning. But as we were just singing these words, great is thy faithfulness, I'm just reminded that uh, one of the things, one of the great promises of Scripture that we have that you own in Scripture, something that He tells you is, is that if you confess your sins, the Lord and Father the great king of this universe is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to just provide some space and some time over the next minute or so just for you to confess sins. Uh, so whether it is uh, disjointedness with a spouse, whether it's anger at a boss, whether it is uh, cheating on a test, whether it, it doesn't matter what it is this week, uh, I just want to provide some time for us this morning just to confess those things. If you've gotten through this week without uh, just simply confessing your sin, I want you to use this time to do that. God and Father, these are the prayers of the saints asking you to forgive us our sins. And of course, we don't, we don't earn that. Simply by confessing them does not earn our forgiveness. We confess these things to you this morning because we know that uh, our asking forgiveness is answered in yes in the cross of Christ. Lord, we know that we uh, are not condemned. There is no longer any condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. He died for our sins. And so, Father, as we confess these sins, I ask that you would just give us the extra measure of grace of just feeling the weight lifted on our souls, knowing that uh, you look at us and you see the good works of Jesus Christ. You do not see our sin any longer. And so we just rejoice and we have assurance in that this morning. Father, I pray for your great peace to be upon our hearts because of it. And I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we are going to be starting in Acts uh, chapter 21 uh, this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 37, kind of picking up where we left off last week. But I've got a question for you uh, right here at the very beginning. Um, we're going to be talking a lot today about testimony. So I want to ask you, have you ever had to give a testimony, a sworn testimony? Have you ever been in a legal proceeding? Uh, maybe not even necessarily in a court. It could have been uh, something where you were uh, being sued or deposed for something. Uh, maybe it's just uh, something where you were called as a witness. It wasn't something that you were necessarily involved in. It was just something that you may have been witness to, but you were asked to give a sworn testimony. Have you ever had to do that? To the best of my recollection, I've only had to do this one time in any kind of official capacity. I'm sure that there are other times, like maybe I got a ticket or something and went to court and had to, you know, swear in or something like that. But I only had to really do it one time. We, uh, uh, several years ago, this was uh, several years ago, we had a young man come through uh, our church that was going through a really messy divorce at the time that he would have told you that he was just completely responsible for. And he was just broken. And so he came and uh, he and I started to form a relationship and we got 
got the opportunity just to meet kind of on a weekly basis. And I was uh, uh, just trying to walk him through this messy time. And what happened was, is that his wife's lawyers uh, found out that we were kind of meeting together, thought that I might have some piece that would be helpful in the divorce proceeding. And so I got called as a witness just got subpoenaed to come into a uh, deposition and give a sworn testimony. And uh, as I was called in there, Sawyer asked me like, hey, are you a little nervous about this whole thing? And I recall saying, uh, no, I'm not nervous about this at all. But of course, in my heart, I was a little nervous. Uh, It wasn't necessarily that I was nervous about like me getting in trouble or even getting somebody else in trouble. Uh, It was that there was a spiritual weight to the whole thing. I was having to come and bear some form of testimony that was going to have um, some kind of impact. And once I was sworn in, um, I realized that uh, the first few questions that were asked were very basic, but it got really personal. And uh, I'd gone in really prepared uh, to answer those questions and just let the lawyers know on both sides, hey, listen, uh, I am a pastor. I'm ordained. This is anything that I would have would be like protected underneath some sort of, you know, clergy, you know, privilege that exists here in Texas. And so I'm just, I'm not going to tell you anything. And, and the, I could tell that the lawyer was a little agitating because he really thought that there was maybe something uh, through all of this that he was going to get out of me that would help. And so after the first uh, few questions of just saying like, hey, did you ever see this in this person? I just said, hey, I want, you to, let, uh, want to let you know whether I saw something or not. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything because I had a really protected relationship with this person and I didn't see any harm done or anything like that. And so I'm just not, I'm going to claim that privilege. And about the fourth or fifth time, he just finally said, hey, we're going to take a recess for a second. He went into another room. He came back and he just goes, I think we're done here. You're, you're, you're not going to say anything. You're just going to say uh, that it was clergy privilege. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and there was a reason why Uh, There was a reason why I wanted to do that, and that's because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping job, and as a pastor, I have a sacred duty to preserve, not destroy marriages, and I just didn't want any part of it. So that was my testimony that day. My testimony was that I didn't want to take part in a divorce. I didn't want to take part of the rending of two souls that had promised to covenant together. I just wasn't going to have any kind of part in that. Testimonies are really important. We don't want to get them wrong. And in some sense, if you've ever been in that situation, it's a little frightening. It's a little weighty. Sometimes there's even the opportunity for offense. If I hadn't have been a, a pastor, I may have had to give some sort of information in a sworn testimony that would have been harmful to somebody that I was trying to minister to and love. So we get the idea that these things are very important. What we're going to find here in Acts chapter 22 is that Paul gives a testimony. Paul gives two testimonies. The first one's going to be kind of on the surface. We're going to see it. It's his testimony. You're probably familiar with it. The second one is going to be like it, but a little bit underneath the surface, and we're going to discover that together today. But what we're going to find is, is that Paul shares two offensive and outrageous testimonies that nearly cost him his life. So pick up with me in verse 27 here. When the seven days were almost complete, I'm sorry, 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? 
Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great hush, and he blessed them in the Hebrew language. And then he's going to give a testimony. And what I want to do is actually skip all the way down to verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And I want to read there because I want to, like many good stories, kind of start with the end of the story. So if you will, skip with me all the way to verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him and they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And the centurion heard this. He went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and asked him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. What we find here this morning is that the gospel is a testimony. The gospel is a testimony of God's outrageous grace. Okay, so if you're wanting to know kind of where we're going, like what is the the road that we're traveling down? Where is the destination that we're trying to reach this morning? You need to know that the gospel is a testimony of God's outrageous grace. And we're going to explore this by talking about three different testimonies. We're going to talk first about Paul's testimony. We're going to talk second about the gospel testimony. And then lastly, if we've got enough time, I want to talk about your testimony as well. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, just by way of context, if you missed last week, we were talking about how Christ's courage at the cross, Christ was a courageous man. His courage at the cross was actually creating confident Christians, and Paul's confidence was in Christ. So he's a very courageous man. Paul had just been beaten up by this mob and dragged out of the temple. But what's happening here, as we read in those first few passages, is that he's still kind of looking for gospel opportunities. He's still looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that this week, at some point, you were like beaten, and then you, in the presence of mind, decided this is probably the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. That's where, that's where he's at. He's thinking, man, this is a perfect opportunity for me to share the gospel. In verse 37, it says that Paul was brought into the barracks, and Paul is polite with the tribune. Paul politely asks him to speak to the crowd, and the tribune is surprised. We find out that he's surprised because Paul speaks Greek. This was a case of mistaken identity. 
The tribune had either heard from somebody in this crowd or had thought at some point by seeing this crowd that had kind of uh, come up in the temple down below, he would have been looking at it. He would have seen this near riot that was happening, this man getting beaten. And he either heard or assumed that this man was an Egyptian man who had 4,000 assassins. Josephus actually tells us that this had happened in uh, real time, about three years earlier, that uh, maybe he was back in Jerusalem. That was the only thing that he knew or thought might be happening in this situation. But Paul instead speaks to him in Greek, not in Egyptian. He says, aren't you that Egyptian fellow with the 4,000 assassins? He said, no, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and all I want to do is just speak to this crowd. Now, uh, you might ask yourself, well, why in the world would this tribune want to do that? Maybe he thought, well, the crowd thinks that he's that Egyptian man, that assassin. Maybe this, maybe just letting him speak to the crowd will like ease all of this. Maybe that's what he was thinking. We're not told, but this tribune goes, okay, go ahead and do it. You've been polite. So Paul, seeking gospel opportunities and being polite and pay attention to this, speaking to him in his own language, finding a common ground was just the first parts of getting the opportunity to share his testimony. That's what's going on here this morning. I wonder if maybe there's some application in there for us to just be consistently seeking opportunities to share the gospel, being polite, being kind, and speaking to one another in a plain way that they kind of understand. I wonder if there's just something in that that tells us what might earn us the opportunity to share our testimony. But what he does there in verse 2, if you'll look at it, you can see that he actually switches from speaking to Greek to this man and switches to speaking Hebrew. He's going to start speaking in, um, in Hebrew to this group of Jews And it's their heart language. And verse 2 says, when they heard this, when they heard that he was speaking in Hebrew, they all got really quiet. And that's where we're going to start this morning, because Paul's going to get the chance to share his offensive testimony. And he's going to do this in kind of three ways. He's going to talk first about his life before Christ. He's going to talk about his encounter with Christ. And then he's going to talk about how he responded to Christ. Verses 3 through 5, let's read them really quickly. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem. In this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. He's talking about Christianity. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So, so what does he tell us about his life before Christ, before he meets Christ? We get this picture of a respectable and zealous Jew He knows his crowd. That's what you need to take away from this portion of it. Paul understands the situation that he's in. He's in front of a group of Jewish people, and he knows that he's got to have some credibility to speak to them. And he says, essentially, I'm not just a Jew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born Jewish, so it wasn't something that I came into. Then I made Jerusalem my hometown. And then pay attention to this. I studied underneath Gamaliel. 
Now, here's where this loses context for us, okay? This name would have been known to not most, all of the people that were there in this crowd would have known this name. Everybody in this crowd would have known who that was because he was the, not one of, he was the most influential Jewish teacher of the law of this era. In fact, even today, Jews can tell you who this was because he virtually transformed the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah was kind of the law of the law. It was the, uh, the fences that they built around the fence of the law to make sure that they didn't get too close to that law. And and Gamaliel was like one of the best teachers. This would have been like saying, I went to Harvard. That's what this would have been like. It would have been like saying, hey, listen, I wasn't just born a Jew. I wasn't just here in Jerusalem. I was actually one of the people that went and studied at the feet of our best teacher. So I was zealous. He even says, I was zealous the way that you are zealous today. And what he says is, is that he used all of that Jewishness in verse 4, to persecute the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. If you want evidence, you can go ask the high priest. They remember who I am. You can ask the whole council of the elders what they asked me to do. They can bear witness. We have a lot to learn from what Paul is doing here. This is a first-rate testimony. Paul is relating his life before Jesus in the context of cultural values, but he's doing something else at the same time. He's not just saying, I'm like you. He's also saying, the way that I am like you was sinful. He's blending these two things together. He's saying, hey, listen, give me, some, give me your ear. Give me your mind. Give me your heart for just a moment. I'm just like you, but that's actually not the best news. What is he saying? He's saying, I persecuted this way. I bound and delivered. I oversaw, he's going to say here in a moment, I oversaw the killing of Christians. And if you want to go ask about it, everybody can tell you that that's the way that it was. So I I wonder if, if there's something in that that we just need to understand that Paul is essentially saying, I'm not just a model for what you think that a good Jew is. I was also a murderer. That's what he's saying here. He's not just saying, I was a model, I'm a murderer. He's blending those two things together. And I wonder if there's something for us to learn in the midst of this. Just knowing that you can talk about uh, culture, you can even acquiesce and say, I was a part of culture in a way that the culture says, hey, we actually recognize that in you, but then turn it around and pull back the veil and reveal in some ways, how worthless and sinful and destructive that identity that you had was. If you you want a few examples here, I mean, because I think that it's really important that we be able to give a strong testimony. We're going to talk about this hopefully at the end. It's important for us to be able to give a strong testimony. So I wonder what it would be like for you to consider your testimony in light of this. How can you tell the culture that you're teaching to, that you're preaching the gospel to, I know and understand our culture? Maybe for some of you, you really valued prior to meeting Christ, you valued your freedom. You really valued like freedom. You were a very uh, liberated person. You uh, loved new experiences. You loved uh, art. You loved getting out in nature. You loved these things that maybe just uh, in some ways told everybody how free you were. Maybe you associated that with uh, smoking marijuana or drinking or living a a very sexualized lifestyle in college. There, There may be something in that that you could just say, hey, listen, I lived as a part of this culture. I was like that. I did those things in a way that somebody says, okay, so you're not just some, 
kind of Christian phony, you actually have some real-world experience that I know something about. But then being able to kindly kind of flip that on its head and say, but that freedom was enslaving. I wonder if you could do the same thing with uh, maybe something else. Maybe it wasn't that you were uh, kind of identified by freedom, but you were enslaved. You were wealthy. You had the right name. You had the right stuff. But you found out how worthless it was. Freedom enslaved. Wealthy, not worthy. I wonder if there's maybe a way of just saying like, hey, listen, I was a very respectable person. On the, on the surface, like, people really respected me. Here's how people respected me. But in honesty, in my heart of hearts, I was a hypocrite. Just being able to say something like that to our culture. I'll tell you one of the things that I've done personally, just in my own testimony, it kind of mimics this a little bit. I was a terrible student. I mean, don't even know how I got the diploma. Um, but I was always a really hard worker. I mean, from before I could drive, I was working and have essentially worked I mean, my entire life. I mean, up until this moment, I've been a pretty hard worker. And, and that's just kind of in me. It's part of my identity. Like, I want other people to think that I'm a hard worker. I want to be a hard worker. Like, it's just, I want to earn and I want to get mine. But here's the funny thing that God has kind of written into my story and testimony. I'm not responsible for any of it. Just any of it. I was born into this whole family where my mom and dad, they uh, didn't just love me, they loved Jesus, they, uh, they raised me to love and cherish the right kinds of things. We were, you know, kind of upper middle class family. I, I didn't want for anything. It wasn't like I was working because I needed those things. My parents provided for me. You know, I've, I've uh, come into, Sawyer and I have come into a little bit of material success, but if you really pull back a lot of the uh, layers there, like a lot of it's just been like, not just luck, it's been like God's providential just blessing. So it's like all of these things that want to attach themselves to my identity that I'm like this really hard worker, it's like also just outright privilege. I mean, that's what it is. It's privilege. And we hear a lot about that word these days. And so it's easy for me to talk with people that are having a conversation about privilege and just say, listen, you want to know the truth? I've always wanted to be known as the really hard worker. I've always worked really hard, just kind of a Napoleon's complex. I was like, bad athlete, bad student, so I'll just try to work it off. I'll try to gain some other kind of reputation outside of that, but all the way along is just like an easy road. And I've just had privilege. And there's like this part of me that kind of hates and wrestles with that but you want to know what the greatest privilege that I've ever received is? It's not being my dad's son. It's about being a heavenly father's son. It's about receiving grace upon grace. It's not something that I want to like run away from or not claim. It's something that I want to embrace. I'm, I'm not saved by my hard work. I'm saved by a loving father who gives grace and privilege. These aren't bad things. We can imagine in some ways where uh, just trying to do that work in your testimony, what was it that was, uh, you were attaching your identity to? And how does that relate to culture and how it attaches its identity to things? And then trying to just peel back and say, here's why that was bad, worthless, un unmeaningful, wicked maybe even. But here's where Jesus Christ comes in. We ought to be really intentional about being able to speak to our life before Christ, just like Paul. 
Paul's sinful status was known to us. He's telling us about it. Paul was saying, hey, I wasn't just a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was killing God's children. And this begs the question, are you ever too far from Jesus? Are you ever too far from Jesus? Maybe that's a question that you've wondered about. Verse 6 through 9 is going to tell us something about that. It's not just going to talk about Paul before Christ. It's going to talk about Paul's encounter with Christ. And what we're going to discover is that no one is too far from God's grace. Pick up with me in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So so we're seeing Paul go from like prior to knowing Jesus and having an encounter with Jesus to now he's encountering the resurrected Christ. Paul is not minding his own business. He's treading on the business of persecuting Jesus' church, and then Jesus shows up. And, and here's where it gets a little offensive, okay? When you're asking me, well, what is so outrageous about Paul's testimony? It's really offensive. In fact, I'd be willing to bet this morning that what we can examine here offends some of you. Jesus shows up. He was not expected. He was not invited Paul was not doing as much as he could to go out and seek Jesus. He was persecuting him, and he was persecuting his people. And then Jesus just interrupts. He just interrupts. Jesus does whatever he wants. He does whatever he wills, and he just intervenes in this murderous rage that Paul has. And what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you're persecuting. Now go into Damascus and wait. Now this is where Paul's testimony gets really offensive because it's not Paul who's saving himself. It's Jesus who's saving him. What, What amount of will did Paul have in the midst of this? What amount of his free will was involved in being encountered by the resurrected Jesus? Zero percent. It was like negative percentage. He was like working against Jesus, and Jesus just intervenes. Jesus is sovereign in saving sinners, and that is offensive. But it's not just who Jesus saves, it's also how he saves. Paul has kind of been overseeing the unjust stoning of Stephen. He's killing others. This is a man who is literally genocidal. He was trying to take care of this Christian problem. And now we see how he saves. And this challenges our ideas of free will. And what we find is is that God is not only sovereign, but in certain instances, just like this one, his grace is like irresistible. Paul was not going to like get blinded on the road to Damascus and just go, I can't see, but I'm just going to pretend like none of this happened. I'm just going to resist 
you as much as possible. La, 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 la. He's not doing that, right? Paul is on this road to Damascus. Jesus interrupts, and there's just something irresistible about the grace that he is about to receive. Do you see it? Maybe it's offensive. There's something offensive about this testimony. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. Here's, here's maybe a, a parable from Jesus that really, I think, gets underneath all of this. Do you uh, remember the uh, parable that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 20? You don't have to turn there. We're not going to turn there. Uh, we're not going to spend much time there. But here's what Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Okay, so he's, he's gone out and he's gotten early, early in the morning, these great workers who are up early to catch the worm. He's like, hey, listen, I'll give you a denarius. Now, a denarius would have been a very generous wage for these workers. And they say, yeah, I'm going into the vineyard today. I'm going to make some money. And they go in and they work. And about the third hour, the owner goes in and sees some people who aren't working. And he says, go work in my vineyard. And then again in the sixth hour, and then again in the ninth hour, and then again in the eleventh hour, the last hour of the day, he calls laborers, and, and, and he says, go into my vineyard, work really hard, and then calls all of them up and pays them. And as he's giving a denarius one to the other, there begins getting, uh, grumbling starts happening with the earliest group. We're all going to get the same thing? We were the ones who toiled underneath the blazing hot sun all day. These, the 11th hour workers, only worked one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and have borne the scorching heat. And, and the, the, vine, uh, the vineyard owner, he is sitting there saying, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and Go. For I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the kind of outrageous kingdom we are living in. That Jesus just does whatever he wants. And it's always grace upon grace. For those people that he invites into his vineyard, for those people that are a part of his kingdom, they're receiving grace upon grace. It doesn't matter if you were there at the first of the morning or at the 11th hour, you're receiving grace upon grace. Don't begrudge his generosity. But there is something in a worldly sense that sticks out to us saying, maybe that's really offensive to think about God in those terms. What you need to know, what Paul's testimony is telling us today, is that God is sovereign in saving sinners. Paul didn't work hard enough. He didn't choose Jesus. But now that we've looked at his life before Christ and his encounter with Christ, let's briefly go to see how he responds to Christ. Paul's testimony is one of complete and helpless surrender. Verse 10, look at it. How does he respond to this resurrected Jesus, meeting him on the road and blinding him? How does he respond? He just simply goes, what shall I do, Lord? And, and Jesus just goes, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will 
be told all that is appointed for you to do. Jesus already has plans for Paul. They weren't Paul's plans for Paul. They were Jesus's plans for Paul. Just rise, go, wait, and there you will be told what I have appointed for you to do. And since I cannot see because of the brightness of the light, he was led by the hand by those who were around him, and he came into Damascus, the city where he had sought to do wickedness and evil. He's led into helpless and blind. Paul's blindness was a physical representation of his spiritual state. He had been blinded, but when Jesus shows him how helplessly wrong and wicked he's been, Paul just surrenders. He just says, what do you want me to do? And then he, said, uh, he receives this word, just go, obey, wait in Damascus, and I'll reveal what's been appointed to you. And then the Lord, out of his grace, sends Ananias, a devout man. And what does Ananias say to him? What's the first word that he says to him? Brother. Saul no longer is a threat to Ananias. He's not breathing out murderous rage. He's not planning to kill Ananias. He's blind and helpless. And Ananias comes and he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And he did. Ananias says this, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness from, uh, for home to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away. Again, this gospel story, this life before Christ, this life meeting Christ, and this life in response to Christ is offensive. This gospel story is offensive to suggest that God has an appointed will apart from Paul's will. This appointed will is uh, going to change Paul's life completely and govern everything from this moment forward. And for many of us, that is an offensive, outrageous idea. Lastly, all of this starts with the necessity of baptism, this public display of humiliation. I mean, I'm using that word really specifically. Paul had come into Damascus to kill people. And the people knew that he was there to kill them. And now, after all of this work, not just the work over the last few years of persecuting the Christians, the work for his entire life. He was studying from a little kid to be the Jew's Jew, to be the Hebrew's Hebrew. And now, what is he going to do? He's going to take the baptism of a Christian publicly proclaiming, I'm Jesus's. That's humiliating. That's humiliating for him. What a beautiful story. Paul's testimony is deeply personal, but it also offends because it upends our assumptions about who is truly in control of the things that most matter to us. Do you see that Paul's testimony is offensive? Do you see how it's offensive? Why it's offensive? Are you offended? Man, I'll tell you, I, I've been offended by Paul's testimony. I've been offended by the doctrines that kind of flow out of Paul's testimony. 
But here's where they get really good. It's not just Paul's testimony that's offensive. It's the outrageous gospel testimony that's laced throughout the story of the gospel grace. This outrageous gospel grace is in the gospel testimony here in Acts chapter 22. God's testimony of love is something that has outraged humans from the very beginning. I mean, from the very beginning. Where? Where where am I seeing this? Where am I seeing this in this set of verses? Let's start reading in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat and those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, look at it, up to this word, they listened to him. They got silent, they listened to his personal testimony, Up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. God here is telling Paul to leave the Jews. They will not accept your testimony about me. And and Paul is essentially saying, like, who's going to believe me? Everyone knows that I imprisoned and beat and approved the killing of Stephen and others. Verse 21 says, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I will send you to the unclean, Jesus is saying. That's how this would have been heard. If you're wondering how this is offensive to the Jews, they were kind of actually cool all the way through, like Jesus showing up on the road to Damascus and like blinding him and sending him into this city. They were kind of on board, I guess. And then here, Paul is saying, I'm supposed to go to the Gentiles. And they go, what? And everybody starts yelling and screaming about what he's talking about. They're offended. They're outraged. Go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. This outrageous gospel testimony, this essentially is God and his love, his love of and his use for wicked people to go tell and save wicked people in the power of the gospel. That's the outrageous gospel testimony. If you didn't follow me in this, pay very close attention to this because this is where it gets good. This is why the Jews have listened up until this point. They say, uh, uh, verse 22 says, up until this word they listen, and then they start shouting, away with such a fellow from the face of the earth. He shouldn't even be allowed to live. They are outraged. Why? Because Paul is saying that the gospel is for the most outrageous among us. Paul is saying that the, out, the, the gospel, the good news, that God himself is for everyone. And that is an outrageous idea to the Jews. I want to read something here real quick because I, I, I have a feeling that maybe at this point it's like, man, I, I get it. I think I get it. I kind of get it. 
but I'm not really making the total connection with outrage. Here's what I want to tell you. If you've never been outraged by the grace of God, you've probably not fully understood it. If you have not been outraged by the grace of God, you've probably never really thought about how deep this goes. Prove it to you. I hear it. Jonah chapter 4. Don't, don't turn there. Just listen. Jonah is in this place where uh, we all know the story, the felt board story where God goes, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He's like, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to get on a boat going the exact opposite direction. We all know that part. And then you know, big waves and everything. And he's like, man, God's really angry. Throw me into the sea. He's like, I'm done for, but at least I'm not going to go preach to the Ninevites. That's what he's saying. Big fish spits him on the shore. He still doesn't go. God comes back to him and goes, go to Nineveh. And he goes, okay. And then he goes uh, half-heartedly, not even half-heartedly. The, the, the city is big enough to where it's like a three-day journey across. He goes like one-third way into the city. And uh, God goes, hey, tell them this. Tell them this. They're going to love this. Forty days and God's going to destroy you. That's the gospel, like to this group of people. That's the preaching that he's supposed to do. Listen to this. You would think that Jonah would have been on board that he would have gotten there and that he would have been psyched to be there with a message like that. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Listen to this. Have you ever read chapter 4? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said to you when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's waiting for its destruction." Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor do you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That's confusing. Jonah goes into the city. He's telling them a, a message of condemnation, and now he's sitting outside of the city waiting for, it to, you know, the, waiting for God's judgment to fall down, and he's angry with God. You know why he's angry with God? Because from king to cow, everybody heard that half-hearted message. They repented. And they threw uh, sackcloth on and ashes, and they repented of their sin. But why is Jonah so angry? 
This is like the most successful evangelist in history. He goes in one day and everybody, everybody repents. Why is he angry? Because he knew that God was abounding in steadfast love, full of grace and mercy. He knew that this was going to happen. The Ninevites, only one generation earlier, had come in and literally raped and pillaged Israel. Did you know this? The Ninevites were like the Nazis of the day. Not the like culture we're going to call everything Nazis. They came in and destroyed Israel. Jonah would have heard the stories. He would have seen the devastation that was still plaguing his people. And God sends him in to this Ninevite city to proclaim judgment against it. But he knew in his heart of hearts that God is outrageously gracious. He just goes, I knew this was going to happen. I just knew it. I knew all of these Ninevites were going to come to know you. I knew that you were going to lavish your grace on them, and that made me angry. You're like, man, Chris, where is this going? The Ninevites were the worst of the worst in Jonah's mind. He, he, had, he had heard all of this stuff. He knew I wonder if you see how outrageous the grace of God is. God's outrageous grace for these Ninevite Nazis, the murderous saw, the unclean Gentiles is always going to be outrageous to us because God's outrageous grace is for the self-centered and the hypocrite, for the murderer and for the thief, for the criminal, regardless of which color collar they wear, the slaveholder and the racist, the tax collector and the abortion doctor. It's for the communists and the capitalists. It's for abusers of women and children. It's for warlords and traffickers. It's for alcoholics and drug abusers. It's for the powerful. It's for the powerless. The grace of the gospel is outrageous. If you have not confronted the outrageousness of the gospel, you haven't gone deep enough. You will share a kingdom one day with these kinds of people, and it outraged the Jews of the day. Gentiles, no way. A man like this doesn't even belong on the face of the earth. That's how outrageous that idea was. But God is abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, full of mercy for sinners. God's outrageous grace is for all of us. It's for all of them, and it's a good thing because if it's for all of them, then it is for you. It does not matter if your sin was the first bite of a fruit that God commanded you not to eat of. It doesn't matter if it was the killing of your brother. It doesn't matter if it was Paul's killing of Christians. It doesn't matter if it was the lukewarmness in the church at Ephesus. It doesn't matter what it is. God's grace will find you. God's outrageous grace can save you. When compared to God's righteousness, all sin, your sin, is an outrage to God. 
But God's outrageous grace covers even the outrage of your sin completely and totally for all of eternity. And so what I invite you to do this morning is to consider the outrage, consider the offense of the gospel. Because it's not just that our sin was outrageous to God. It's that God brought us outrageously into his kingdom by the most outrageous act that ever happened in human history. If you're getting like lost in all of the outrage and everything, come back to me. What's the most outrageous thing that's ever happened in all of human history? It's the one sinless man, Jesus Christ, being crucified on a cross. That's the most outrageous thing. It took the most outrageous thing that's ever happened in human history to save you from the outrageousness of your sin. And anybody who's really thinking about it has to just go, man, God's love, His grace is outrageous because it can save anyone. And if you don't get that, if you think that there's some sort of marker some sort of line in the sand that you can go over and then never, ever return, that God's grace can't extend past that line that you've somehow arbitrarily drawn, you'll be depressed because you won't think that God's love can save you in your deepest, darkest moments. You'll limit the people that you'll try to share the gospel with because you won't think that God's outrageous grace can extend past to a person like that. If you underestimate the outrageousness of God's grace, you will treat other people poorly because you'll think that there are people that are lessers in our society, people that are deplorable, that are unsavable, that are irredeemable. Underestimating the grace of God leads to a plethora of sin. So I just plead with you this morning, do not underestimate God's grace. Do not underestimate God's grace. Never in human history was there a more outrageous display of God's love than when he crucified Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, to be slain for the sins of every sort of human And I just want you to internalize that kind of gospel, to know it deeply in your heart, to be liberated by it. The gospel is a truly true testimony of God's outrageous grace towards fatally flawed sinners. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is a testimony of God's love towards you. The gospel is a testimony of His outrageous love for you. So I wonder about your testimony. If Jesus is the testimony of God's love, and, and, and God, uh, God is just outrageously, deeply in love with sinners like us, I wonder if we can tell other people about it. I wonder as uh, we consider Paul's testimony of undeserved grace in God's testimony of grace, I wonder, what is your testimony? Have you thought about it? Do you, know, do you know how you would tell that story of God's outrageous grace towards you? Because I think it's one of the most powerful things that you have in your tool belt to save people's lives forever. There's lots of good ways of, of, of sharing the gospel. In the coming months, we are, are looking, I'm talking with uh, Daniel, 
who is just really gifted in evangelism, who's seeing people be saved in and around the TCU campus, thinking about having him come and do like, uh, uh, do evangelism trainings in our discipleship groups, because I want for us to do that. But, but there are like lots of gospel, like there's lots of ways of sharing the gospel, but I wonder if you have thought about the way that you share the gospel with your testimony. You, like Paul, must be prepared to share God's testimony of grace by sharing your testimony of your salvation. So I'm going to end there. I want to pray for us that we might be just excellent at sharing the testimony of God's grace. I want for us to become excellent at sharing God's testimony uh, in our lives, how we were personally saved. So I just want to, would you please just pray with me this morning that God would do that in us. God and Father, your love is outrageous. From the bite of the first apple to the very end, uh, human beings have been undeserving of your grace. And those of us who think that we are, those of us who think that uh, we deserve somehow your grace because we've worked hard enough or we have uh, become good enough, uh, Lord, it's just such folly. So we just confess that to you this morning. Lord, we do desire greatly to be able to share the testimony of Jesus, to share the testimony of your good grace, the story of your good grace to us through Jesus. We want to share that with those that are around us. Lord, would you make us bold? Would your outrageous love make us bold to share that? Lord, I pray that you would help us be disciplined to think about how we might share the story that you have written in and through our lives that sweeps us up into the grand narrative of your gospel. Lord, how we could share that with somebody else this week. Lord, I pray that uh, we wouldn't even in those testimonies lean on our own understanding, that we wouldn't uh, try to polish it up Uh, so that we could still be performative in some way. I pray that you would just give us grace, that you would bring people to our minds and our hearts that we would pray for, that you would give us opportunities like you gave Paul, and that when we have those opportunities, that we would use them. Father, I pray that as um, as we turn our attention towards communion and singing and giving and fellowship, uh, Lord, as we turn our attention towards those things, Lord, let us not let loose of the duty and delight to share this testimony with others. Let us not forget about it. Go a week without thinking about it. Lord, make us mindful, make us disciplined to do this and share this. Father, your grace, just like Jonah says, is slow to anger, it's abounding in love, Lord, I pray that you would allow for us to feel that today. Lord, for those who have come into this room this morning feeling weighted down, shackled up, imprisoned, enslaved by sin, Lord, would you help them know that King Jesus liberates them from all of it and that they didn't deserve it and that it's outrageous. Lord, but I pray that you would allow for them to feel that very much this morning, just the weight lifted the freedom, the liberty that is in the gospel. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.